Would you please take your Bibles and open them up to Ephesians chapter 3? Ephesians chapter 3. I am going to be speaking, preaching this morning on Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And the title of the sermon is, From Whom All Fatherhood in Heaven and on Earth Derives Its Name. Ephesians 3:14 and 15. Now it's fitting that we take a Sunday a year and dedicate it as Mother's Day, if for no other reason than we can have an excuse to buy flowers or to take mother out for a meal. But it's also fitting today, and I would argue that it's even more fitting today that we have a Father's Day. Because today in America and around the Western world at least, uh, Fathers are absent, and this is the great reality of the Western world. If you look at the statistics of the Western world, you'll see that around Europe there is a great decline. In fact, much of the context within which to understand the rising of the European Union has to do with the demographics of Western Europe. Western Europe simply is not having children. And you can go all through Western Europe, country after country after country after country, and what you see is a demographic decline. And if it weren't for the um, immigration of uh, northern Africans, for instance, in France, you go to England, the reality you notice as you go around England is how many people there are of a different racial or ethnic extract than, than, than the British. They're not white. And uh, this is true all over Europe. And so much of the understanding behind the European Union is the effort of Europe to sort of hold its hegemony that it's had for centuries uh, by coming together, putting the past behind, coming together, and somehow trying to craft an economic, political, military power. But uh, recently there was an article written uh, in Foreign Affairs that my brother was telling me about where one of the major uh, diplomatic uh, representatives of France was saying, no matter how tightly we, we pull the European Union together, we have to recognize the fact that even absolutely monolithic un unity of Western Europe will never allow us to compete with the United States. And uh, now we come to the United States and we look at what's going on in our country demographically. Are we having children? And the answer is... No, our country, if it weren't for immigration, our country is actually not at a reproductive rate of having children. We've fallen under the 2.1 per married couple, and marriages aren't happening the way they used to. Now, I can't produce the words of an expert to tell you this, but I can tell you it's my considered opinion that nations which are not having children are nations where fathers are absent. And I can tell you that I was, and I don't remember where this was. I better stop and think a second. Um, I don't remember where it was. But I was somewhere. I'm afraid it's somebody here, and I don't want to do that. But I'll just assume it's not somebody here. Uh, I was somewhere, and I was uh, talking to the people about uh, the blessing of children. And... Uh, in the course of the conversation, the couple was saying how hard it is to have faith to have children. And as I watched the two of them 
it was very clear to me that the person lacking faith was not the wife, but it was the husband. And so I sort of turned and began to encourage the husband that having children is a wonderful blessing, you know. And uh, I could tell that he was somewhat skeptical of this. Um, So then I very helpfully offered to send him a copy of the pamphlet, How Many Children Should We Have? At which point um, he and his wife both admitted that in fact she had given him a copy of this pamphlet, but that he had not read it yet. And uh, if you want it, it is in the back wall. And uh, so then I looked at the husband and I said, you know, in my experience, it is always true that couples that struggle over how many children to have, the wife wants more and the husband wants less. Now, I could tell you there are good reasons for this. Um, One of the good reasons is that the husband feels the burden of providing for these children. The husband just sees the bills of, of college building, 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 you know. Now, I could go on and tell you additional pressures of being a father. I had a very pleasant lunch with David Crum at General Assembly. And, uh, you know, David Crum very definitely feels the pressures of all of the different relationships of his sons. We spent a time talking about uh, of these three sons sitting here, which of them would get along with which other. You know, you have to mediate the conflicts of sons for one thing especially when the sons have grown up playing war in the backyard. And uh, that's a joke. Um, But just stop for a second and think. If it's so hard on husbands, how hard is it on the mother? And then it's laughable. I mean, the mother does not have to, stating the obvious, give birth to the child. Or the mother does have to give birth to the child. The, the, The father doesn't. And so for the father to sit there and moan a groan, about you know having to provide for these children, it's really pretty pathetic. You know, I didn't see Archie getting up when the baby began crying and walking to the back and trying to figure out how in the world she was going to shut him up before it came time for the baptism. And that's just one tiny manifestation of the constancy of motherhood, of carrying around that weight in her womb, of giving birth, and then of having to nurse the child, to diaper the child, She lives for that child. That child is not another human being. That child is an appendage of her body for year after year after year. So coming back, I am sympathetic, but then again, I'm not sympathetic to husbands saying that it's very, very difficult to be fathers. Um, It is, but it's nothing like a mother. And so we see that in America, too, there is a great turning away from fatherhood. When I talk to pastors, I tell them that the largest need that I see in my churches and around the country today is what I refer to as father hunger. Recently, David Spade, the actor, who's somewhat of a smart aleck, uh, sort of funny guy, uh, was being interviewed. And listen to what he says about his father. And I just think this is classic. Uh, There were all the ingredients of a potentially happy childhood in David Spade's background. Two parents, Judy and Sam, David and two older brothers, Brian and Andy, all evenly spaced two years apart in a nice home in Birmingham, Michigan. What went wrong? He says this. He says, quote, I was playing football with my dad and he told me to go out for a pass. He yelled, go deeper, deeper. And then he jumped in his dune buggy and he drove away. 
And then after saying this, Spade waited a split second and then added seriously, quote, one day my dad just split. I was four years old. It was too much pressure, three kids, a wife, and a job. He would come around once or twice a year, but that was it. Now, what's true of the world, and I think we see it all around us, is also true of the church, particularly the mainline church. Some years back when I was a pastor in the PCUSA, the large uh, mainline Presbyterian church, I got a letter from denominational officials. Now, this might not strike you as that momentous an occasion. Certainly getting a letter wasn't. They sent letters all the time. But this statement in that letter said a world of things, and I I don't think to this day they have any idea what it said. The letter from the denominational officials said, quote, the Presbyterian Church USA recognizes the dangerous decline in its male membership, unquote. Let me give you some statistics from uh, other mainline denominations. According to a 1984 report on membership statistics within the United Methodist Church, At that time, quote, about 61% of United Methodists active in their churches are women compared to 39% active men. And in the 1950s, it was approximately 48 to 52, which was the exact same demographic breakdown between men and women as in the population at large. Lyle Schauer, one of the keenest and most respected church growth experts, wrote has written that in 1952, the adult attendees at Sunday morning in a typical Methodist or Presbyterian or Episcopal or Lutheran or Disciples of Christ or Congregational Worship Service, approximately it was 53% female and 47% male, the same as the distribution of the adult population at large. But by 1986, these ratios were closer to 60% female, 40% male, many congregations reporting a 67% female, 33% male, Ratio. Recently, Woodward, the religion editor for Newsweek, wrote an article for Commonweal. It was in 1986, entitled Gender and Religion, Who's Really Running the Show? And in that article, he quoted a number of Protestant ministers who reported that in their churches, the women outnumber the men by three to one. Now, I'm going to do something. And I'd, need, like, uh, I'd like four, four men to come here. David, would you come here? David Dodrell, would you come here? Archie, would you come here? And Tim, would you come here? All right, I want you to count the men and women of this congregation. Uh, David Carell, you can just come up. And you each take your section and uh, just count the ratio of men to women. Do you need them to stand to identify which they are? (laughs) And there is a boy-man or man-boy, two boy-men, men-boys up in the balcony. And I'll, David Carell, you can get the balcony, man. Now, would you guys get together and combine your statistics and give me a, a percentage breakdown, please? Looks like David Carell is, is pen and paper out. So combine the numbers. David, are you going somewhere?
answer, Kat. Neither am I. Well, according to this, if no one counted you, exactly you know. 57, 56. No one counted you. There's babies. And that would not include the nursery. And I think we have more boys than girls, don't we? Okay, so in the sanctuary, not including the two nurseries and not including me, it's 57-57. Now, it's interesting. If you were to go to the graduate and undergraduate students, you know what you'd find? You'd find that it's overwhelmingly male. Now, what does that tell us about our congregation? Any ideas? I mean, obviously, it tells us we're 50-50, right? It actually tells us that we have a higher statistical average of men in this congregation than there is in the population at large. All right? Only by a few people. Does it tell you anything? Do you, do you know what it does tell you? Do you know that you can go to the statistical books of any denomination in the country and you can predict their commitment to the authority of Scripture by their gender ratio? Do you know you can do that? It's absolutely true. You have a denomination your parents are in. You bring me their statistical books. And all you have to do is tell me the ratio of men to women in a particular congregation. And I will tell you whether that congregation is evangelical or liberal. Now, you think I'm, I'm wrong, but I've done this. My sister's in Chicago Presbytery of the PCUSA. She runs a school in the inner city in the Lakeview District. And so it's typically evangelical churches that support her school. So we got out the PCUSA statistic book. We opened it up. And let me tell you, there's nothing there other than numbers. And so I went through the churches and I looked at two things. I looked at the proportion of men to women on the board of elders. And I looked at the proportion of men to women in the, in the congregation at large. And I told her what churches she could go to and get support in her presbytery. And I was completely on the money. Many of the ones I named were ones that already supported her. And she just kept going, yep, yep, yep. And so what it tells us about our congregation is the fact that we have men here indicates that this is a Bible-committed, Bible-believing congregation. Now, I'm not going to continue talking about that, but there is a world of truth in that short statement. If you think about it, one implication of that is, you know how often, because of the constant hemorrhaging of people leaving this congregation because of the, the nature of our community, one implication of that is that a very good way, when we have people asking us, how should I choose a church? A very good way to have people choose a church when they go into a new town is just ask for the ratio of men to women in a congregation. They wouldn't even have to listen to the preaching. Now, again, you think I'm wacko. Check it out. And then ask yourself, why is it that evangelical denominations as a whole have a much higher proportion of men involved? Why is it that the liberal denominations have a huge imbalance between men and women? Why? Well, here's what I believe. I believe that when God is going to work, God awakens men. And guess what? It's an absolutely biblical concept. Because in the garden, it was not when Eve sinned that the race became damned. It was when Adam sinned. 
And when Adam and Eve both sinned, it wasn't to Eve that God came to hold an accounting, but he came to Adam and he said, you. Adam and Eve were both there, but God came to Adam for an accounting for what had happened. And so doesn't it make sense that when you have souls who are revived spiritually, who have come to know the nature of sin and righteousness and judgment and have fled to the cross, that it is going to be men that lead this movement. Now, the question is, uh, will women be there also? And the answer is absolutely. Mary Lee's sister went to the same seminary I went. And being a woman at a seminary studying for a degree is somewhat of a statement in this world that we live in. I'll never forget Cindy saying, while she was at seminary, she was still single, and she said, what women want is a man who will be a leader spiritually. And this is what you hear over and over and over again. I mean, it's just absolutely true. Um, I tell people about our congregation, and, and if you know this congregation, you know this is true. The thing that makes our congregation stand out is actually not our women, not our men, I should say. The thing that's outstanding about our congregation is our women. Uh, <laughs> and those of you that know this congregation know this is true. We sit in elders' meetings laughing about how hard it is to lead our wives. I mean, we really do. We have actually laughed in elders' meetings about the difficulty of leading our wives. Now, why? Are they rebellious? No, that's not the issue. The reason is that the women of this congregation are intense, leading, intelligent, uh, pushy in a good way women. And to stay ahead of them spiritually is a very difficult job. Very difficult. And if we make a wrong decision that puts in jeopardy the souls of their children, these women will let us know. Now, I'm telling you all this so that you begin to think about manhood and womanhood. You begin to think about sexuality when it comes to faith. Because the fact is, in every other area of life, we're very willing to admit how important sexuality is. But when it comes to faith, we go into existential la-la land. You know, we act like we don't see it. You know, you come in church, you become an androgynous creature. Wrong. And much of the battle for faithfulness to Scripture today depends upon us coming to Scripture and saying, you know, Scripture does address the issue of sexuality. And it doesn't just say don't fornicate and don't commit adultery. It actually talks about how we're to relate to each other. It talks about the nature and significance of sexuality. So it's fitting that there is a day set apart for us to think about one part of the bipolar sexuality, that namely fatherhood. And for us to say that in the Western world today, fathers are absent. David Spade is hilarious because he's true. And we always laugh at what's true. All right? And his father said, go deep deeper, and then he got in his dune buggy and he drove away. Now, let me ask about us in this church. What is our commitment as men? And let me ask those of you who are sisters and who are wives and mothers and grandmothers, what is your commitment about men? You know, um, let me put it like this. If Father Hunger is a huge void in the souls of people today. And if fathers are absent, as women, are you prepared to teach your husband how to be a father? How to be a husband? 
grandmothers, you prepared to teach your grandsons how to take on the leadership that God has ordained. I mean, if Adam is a helper suitable for, if Eve is a helper suitable for Adam, doesn't it make sense that the first thing she'd do is help him to be a man? Ephesians 3, 14 and 15. Very short text. Paul, in the middle of a prayer, says this. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom... Now, your Bibles probably say every family. But that is wrong. And this is the only place in Scripture where I would say that not one Bible gets the right translation right. And I've studied this for years, and I know that that's an absolutely bodacious thing to say, but I say it with very great seriousness. The correct translation is, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom all fatherhood in heaven and earth derives its name. The Greek here is for the Father, it's ton patera, and for all fatherhood, it's pasa patria. Now, can you hear that? Patera and patria. You know patriarchy? That's the root. And knowing that you're skeptical of a pastor who has had one year of classical Greek at UW-Madison making such a statement, let me read the top Greek scholar of the last half a century, F.F. Bruce, in his comments on this text, he says Ephesians 3.14 probably means that God is the Father, Pater, from whom every fatherhood, Patria, in heaven and on earth is named. Every Patria is so named after the Pater. God is the archetypal Father. All other fatherhood is a more or less imperfect copy of his perfect fatherhood. Now, the marginal reading in the NIV actually is fatherhood. And so there's a translation that gives that as a margin. But this is a very important text today because it teaches us that when we speak of God as Father, we're not using a metaphor. We're not using uh, one of those sly techniques of the English professor to communicate something. But when we speak of God as Father, we are speaking of God in his essence in who he is. I want to read from an essay published in the Reformed Journal some years ago on the issue of God's fatherhood. And they said this in the essay, a crisis of language is always a crisis of meaning. That is to say, a crisis of authority. And we all know that everybody is fighting over the issue of language with respect to fatherhood, motherhood, sexual identity, um, and particularly in the language of worship. In the PCUSA, when I was there for almost a decade, uh, I could count on just a few hands a number of times in any worship service of that denomination. I heard God prayed to as our Father. It was almost always great God, uh, uh, if it was Trinitarian, it was Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer. 
the language of fatherhood was almost dead in the PCUSA. And so when it says here a crisis of language is always a crisis of meaning, a crisis of authority, let's have our ears attuned to the battle over language with sexuality today and acknowledge it's a battle. So that means it must be a battle of meaning and a battle of authority. Linguistic history, intellectual history, and social history converge to reveal that it is at turning points or crises in the history of civilization that the concept of linguistic validity is most keenly attacked and defended. In theological terms, God the Father is not really a metaphor at all, at least not in the minds of the writers of Scripture or early interpreters of the Christian tradition. For them, it is the logos of the universe made flesh in Christ Jesus, who is the agent of creation out of nothing, ex nihilo. And all creatures of this world derive their being from him, having no existence at all, except by participation in him. As Jaroslav Pelican puts it, quote, Using the name Father for God was not a figure of speech. It was only because God was the father of the Logos Son that the term father could also be applied to human parents. And when it was used of them, it was a figure of speech. As the father of the word, the Logos, God was, according to the New Testament, the father from whom all fatherhood in heaven and earth is named. And in human families, both the parents and the children are only an imitation of divine prototypes. Cardinal Ratzinger in the Roman Catholic Church says, Christianity is not a philosophical speculation. It is not a construction of our mind. Christianity is not our work. It is a revelation. It is a message that has been consigned to us and we have no right to reconstruct it as we like or choose. Now, what does this mean? All this discussion of the word father as it's applied to God. First of all, it means we don't apply the word father to God because we have had human fathers who were good and therefore we can identify who God is in his goodness. It's not why we call him father. We call God father because that is what he is. He is the father of the son, Jesus Christ. He is the creator of the universe. Towards the universe, God has the organ of initiation. God is intrinsically a father. And so we do not in our worship call him father and pray to him as father because we've had good fathers and can identify with the concept. No. We call God father because that's who he is. And we call our father's father because we have known the father from whom every family gets its name. And we can begin to see some indication of who God is through our father. Okay, But they have a derivative naming. They're only fathers insofar as they do reflect the fatherhood of God. And to the degree that they don't reflect it, they are not worthy of the name. So, the first application of this is, if you've had a lousy father, rejoice. You have a perfect one, and it's God. And he is the only one who owns the name. He has a franchise right on it. Okay, It's his trademark. And nobody can use it except insofar as they reflect who he is and his character and his blessings and his gifts. So you don't need to be alienated from the name Father because your father has failed. First of all, every father is a, a massive combination of failures. So don't think your life is unique in any way. Uh, 
I won't go into that. Um, but second, even if you have the best father who ever was, he's just the tiniest, most pathetic image of God's fatherhood, and he is perfect. So, first of all, don't give in in the attack on the language. But then second, this morning, for those of us who are fathers, let us remember that every one of us who is a father or who will someday become a father of children, every man who exercises spiritual fatherhood in the church, either as a member of the elders board, as a teacher, as the Wednesday program director, we have an awesome responsibility because we carry the image of the fatherhood of God stamped on our every action. And the question we need to ask is, how much of God's fatherhood do our students, our grandchildren, our daughters, our sons understand because they have seen God's fatherhood in us? Have we been good fathers? Have we let our families closer to or driven them further from God? The first time Jim Dobson's son, Ryan, prayed, his prayer began, Dear Daddy. Now, I believe there are many Christian men who indeed want to recover the biblical role of spiritual leader in their homes, but do not know how or where to begin. And maybe you have had the experience of not having a good father. Um, Mrs. Wegner, uh, Sally, gave me a poem a week ago about fatherhood. And the, the lament all through the poem is, how do you know how to be a father if you've never had one yourself? Well, we do have a father. And the Father is God. And through God, we can learn the basic parameters, the basic callings, responsibilities, and privileges of fatherhood. And I want to briefly just focus on five of them. Um, somewhat arbitrary and how to decide what to focus on, but these are the five I have chosen. The first one I want to choose in saying that God is a Father and that we are called to reflect Him to those that we lead and care for. God, our Heavenly Father, is always available to us. God is available. God is not an absent Father. In Psalm 139, verse 7, it says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? We can't. If we are wicked and we think that we can hide ourselves from God, we can't. There's absolutely no place to go that is away from God. Whether we're alive or whether we're dead, we are in God. He made us. He is the one that sets the boundaries of our days on earth. If we go down to the depths of the sea, he is there. If we climb to the height of the heavens, you remember the cosmonaut who was up in the, uh, in the space capsule and came back to earth and had the stupidity to say in public that he had been in space and had looked and had not seen God. And the New York Times ran a political cartoon that I saw as a little child where there was this space capsule and this cosmonaut looking out the window of the space capsule. And out of his mouth came the statement, I can't see God anywhere. And a humongous hand was under that space capsule holding it up in space. <laughs> you know, I don't see God anywhere. God is always present and he is always present, available to us. Now, are you available as a father? And let me tell you, my experience in preparing to preach this is to feel, uh, to know, not, let's not talk about feelings, to know that, that I am a failure. And here especially, available to my children. I just got done spending a week with Taylor. 
And as I prepared to preach, I thought how much of the time I spent with Taylor. I was just completely lost in my own selfish thoughts and did not engage him in conversation. Yesterday, driving back from General Assembly in Charlotte, hour after hour after hour in the car, just silence. Now, silence can be good. But in this case, silence was an evidence of my lack of care and concern for my son. And uh, I just want to say that you can be physically present but completely unavailable to your children. And if we're going to be good fathers, we need to be available to our children. If you're going to be a good father of the church, you need to be available to any woman or man that comes in this church looking for the encouragement of an older man. Dad, when I was a little child, felt uh, a desire to be uh, with me. He was gone on the road a lot. This was one you know, the sins of the fathers to the children. Uh, he was gone constantly. And I remember he made a determination one time that he was going to deal with this. And so he decided we were going to carve a boat. And he got a big block of wood. And he always had this thing, and I did too, of little boats with electric motors. You'd put the battery in the boat and then a little thing on the outside. So he gets a piece of wood, and we're going to go out in the woods and have father-son time and, and, and carve a boat, right? Um, so we go out into the woods and hack away, and I don't remember any. I don't remember that piece of wood being anything other than a block of wood, which means we probably got nowhere. But I do remember that that day we went out into the woods. He had me sit down on a log that was covered with poison ivy. <laughs> and yes, exactly what you're thinking. I had shorts on, and to this day I hate poison. I feel about poison ivy the way many of you feel about skyscrapers and cliffs. Well, it was the intent that mattered, and my father was trying to be available to me. The Lord is available to us. Uh, I just ordered a whole new set of the little booklet that was so helpful to me when my father gave it to me in junior high called My Heart, Christ's Home. And the theme of that book is the availability, in fact, the waiting that God does for us. I encourage you to read it. It would take about ten minutes. So God is available, and we as fathers are to be available to our children, not just our physical children, but those who have needs in the church. Second, God is available, and God is patient. We have an example in our Heavenly Father of perfect patience. Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. Verse 10, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Verse 13, like as a father has pity on his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. For he knows our frame that we are made of dust. And so God is patient towards us. And we know, all of us who are fathers, that one of the verses that's preached on probably most frequently on Father's Day is Ephesians 6.4, which says, Fathers do not exasperate your children. Now, I told you that there are two particular, uh, out of the uh, things that I'm going to go through, two particularly that I am convicted about, and one is available and one is patient. You say, well, what do you do well? <laughs> That's a good question. But are you patient with your children? Um, when your children do things wrong at the table and you have guests there, guests always make it worse because your pride is on the line. Do you just snap? You snap at your children? 
because they made you look bad, their manners? Do you remember that your son is dust, that your daughter is just a will-o'-the-wisp? Do you remember that they're in teenage years and that their egos are desperately struggling to grow and that it's very hard because they have pimples? Although I think pimples have gone today. I don't think people have them anymore the way they used to. I remember high school. and hmm. Do we have compassion and patience on our children, on little things like parts of their body that don't work properly? Their lack of memory, we tell them ten times, do we snap the eleventh time? Now, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a point at which they're disciplined if they don't remember. But are we patient with our children? The Lord is patient with us. And he commands that we are not to exasperate our children, that we're not to purposefully make them mad. First, God is available. Second, God is patient. And third, God is forgiving. Are we forgiving, fathers? Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And 1 John 1.9 reveals the character of our Father God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't remember what it was that I did, but I do remember that when I was somewhere between 18 and 21, I did something that was quite bad. And I came under a deep conviction of it. And I, it was against my father and mother, but obviously I went to my father to ask forgiveness. And I remember saying to him, Dad, you know, I, what I did was wrong. I did such and such. Would you please forgive me? And I remember my father, I remember where we were standing. He looked at me and he said to me, Oh... I think what he said was, he looked at me, he said, oh, just, just forget it. And I looked at him and I said, no, Dad, will you forgive me? Because I knew when he said, just forget it, that what he was saying was, you know, I, I'm beyond forgiving you. I, I don't think you're sincere. I'm not willing to forgive you. And you all have had this in your marriages, in your relationships with your roommates, where maybe you don't have the wisdom to ask for forgiveness or maybe you've asked for forgiveness and what they say is just forget it. And we tell you there's a huge difference between forgiving and just sort of shoving it off and saying, yeah, okay, it's all right. And God forgives us. The Bible tells us as far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. And when the disciples wanted to find a way to escape forgiving, and asked how many times they had to do it, he said, infinitely. He said, forever you have to forgive. And so as fathers, are you forgiving of your children? Are you forgiving 70 times 7? God is available. God is patient. God is forgiving. And then fourth, God is an authority. I so often hear people tell other people or say to me that uh, the Bible does not command fathers to be in authority. It just commands their wives to submit to their husbands. It commands children to honor and submit to and obey their parents. And I say that's a false statement. Uh, all of Scripture is written with the assumption that authority that God delegates to a man is to be cultivated and used properly. If God sees fit to delegate something to us, 
then for us to deny that we ought to implement it is for us to deny the nature of God's delegation. If you're in a shop, you work in a factory or something, and uh, you're told that the foreman's going needs to leave the plant for a while and that you're in charge while he's gone, and when he comes back, you say, well, you know, they took a vote and they weren't willing for me to be the person. The foreman isn't going to say, well, that's cool, you know. After all, you have to you have to receive the approval for your authority from the people you lead until you actually use it. And that's what everybody says. You know, you have to win your authority. You have to be willing for the people under you to follow you if you're going to use authority. In Psalm 103, again, verse 19, it says, "The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all." And can you imagine having? God as a father and trying to model his fatherhood and having no throne in your home. Having no respect for the one who bears the image of the father God in that home. Now, I'm not saying that woman does not bear God's image. She does. But she does not bear the image of fatherhood. And can you imagine a father who there's no trembling at him in the home? And just ask yourself, is such a father a father at that point? No, he's not. He's a mother. Or he's a coward. But he is not a father. You can't have fatherhood without both fear and love. And a father in a home should be feared. And I'll tell you, in a home where the woman is the head of the home, uh, is a home with either a weak or an absent man. And it's a tragedy. And the children that grow up in that home give infinite evidence of the reality of that home and the fact that it's sick, it's not healthy. And uh, we look at uh, this verse, the Lord has established his throne in heaven. You think all through scripture of the jealousy of God for his authority. And then we say that when it comes to human authority, which God himself has delegated, okay, when it comes to human authority, that we should only exercise it insofar as those following us are willing for us to have that role. Let me tell you, the role of a father in a home is not a role. Because roles are things that you pick and choose. They're social constructs. But a father of a home has an identity, a reality, an absolute that he's been given by God. And if he is not an authority in the home who is both loved, has great affection on the part of his children and his wife, and also feared... He's a father who does not reflect the fatherhood of God. Now, he will be a father that will play very well on Seinfeld. Or whatever the shows are, there are families. Seinfeld is too immature to have families, right? So what would be a show where a father is just like vacuous? What one? Everybody loves Raymond. Is that the father? And does everybody love him? In my family, I had a very, very, I have a very intense, and I know she was here for a couple of months. You guys didn't see this. But some of that is the result of age. But my mother is bright, she's articulate, and she is intense. And, you know, we would see our, I would see mud and dad fighting. It always happened at Thanksgiving over the turkey, without fail except the year that dad 
played a practical joke on her, and he was so anticipating the moment that the joke would spring that they forgot to fight that year. <laughs> he took a Cornish game hen and replaced the big turkey with a Cornish game hen. <laughs> and he put the big turkey in another one. We always had tons of guests at Thanksgiving, so there was a lot riding on that turkey. And when she went to take it out of the oven, she went like that, you know? It just popped in the air as it's tiny, and he tied it up and made it look perfectly like their turkey. Well, they fought. But you know something? It was never in doubt as to who was the authority in our home. Never. She'd give him a run for his money. But my father was the head of our home. And so, guess what? In that respect, it was a biblical, a godly home. Fathers are to be available. They're to be patient. They're to be forgiving. They're to be an authority. And finally, fathers are to be loving. Do you remember that statement in James 5.11 where it says, The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Do you remember in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15.20 that while the son was still a long way down the road, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. My father, I've told you before, was once preaching in the chapel at Wheaton. And in the middle of his sermon, he mentioned how many children, would teenagers, wish that their fathers would hug them and kiss them. And when he did it, without, without him ever having thought this would happen, uh, the students got up and gave him a standing ovation. And if you're a father... You are called to touch your children and to love them. Really? You agree with that? Okay. Excellent. Um, sometimes, we get, sometimes we get off on this trip of acting as if um, this is an ethnic matter. You know, we talk about how some racial and ethnic groups are more demonstrative than others. And, you know, and so those of us that are repressed Scottish Presbyterians think you know, that we've escaped conviction, but we haven't. You look at all the images. Somebody this last week was talking about Christ's disciples, and they said there was Peter, and we all know what Peter was like, and there was John who had his head on the breast of Jesus. And we think of John, but what about Jesus? What kind of a father to his disciples was he that this disciple had his head on his breast? And so touch is so important. And, you know, I don't want to scare you into it, but do you realize that so often the thing that creates sexual uh, temptation and sin in the church is that fathers have not bothered touching, especially their teenage daughters. If you're a father, you need to be in physical contact with your daughter. God has given her a desire to be approved of and to be loved and and to have somebody tender with her. And, uh, you know, people are sometimes uncomfortable with the degree in our church to which we touch each other. But, you know, uh, the Bible talks about greeting one another with a holy kiss. And when I greeted David Crum at General Assembly, I kissed him. And if that's true of men with men, how much more true of fathers with their daughters and their sons? You know, we should be 
people who are large enough, not small enough, but large enough to tenderly touch our children. And you know, that's the best antidote against touching that's wrong. It's such a twisted world when every touch of a father of his children is suspect. And the way to deal with that is to look at full in the face and to be say, I'll be hanged if I'm going to allow that to keep me from touching my children. Let them take me to jail. <laughs> Same way we handle spanking. Let them take me to jail. At least my children will grow up knowing they love, that I love them and that I'm willing to discipline them and touch them. Fathers who are available, patient, forgiving, authorities, and loving. The average teen in an evangelical church spends two minutes a day in meaningful conversations with his father. One in four church teens says they've never had a meaningful conversation which centered on their values and interests with their father. Never. An average child today spends 14.5 minutes a day speaking and listening to parents. And of those 14 and a half minutes, 12 of them involve reprimands. I want to read question and answer 129 and 130 from the Westminster Larger Catechism. It's in an opening up of the fifth commandment, which, which speaks of the need of children to honor their father and mother. And it says, what is required of superiors towards their inferiors? First it said, what does this mean children should do to their parents? But now it says, what does this mean parents should do for their children? All right? And it says, it is required of superiors, of parents, of fathers, according to that power they receive from God and that relation in which they stand to love, pray for, and bless their inferiors, to instruct, counsel, and admonish them, countenancing, commending, and rewarding such as do well, and discountenancing. Now, what does discountenancing mean? Don't let them see your face. That's a punishment to a child. You turn your face away from them. Discountenancing, reproving, and chastising such as do ill, protecting and providing for them all things necessary for soul and body, and by grave, wise, holy, and exemplary carriage, to procure glory to God, honor to themselves, and so to preserve that authority which God has put upon them. Then what are the sins of superiors, of fathers? The sins of fathers are, besides the neglect of the duties required of them that we just read, an inordinate seeking of themselves, of their own glory, of their own ease, of their own profit, of their own pleasure. Commanding their inferiors to do things that are not lawful or not, they're not able to do outside their power. Counseling, encouraging, or favoring them in that which is evil. Dissuading them, discouraging, or discountenancing them in that which is good. Correcting them unduly. Careless exposing or leaving them to wrong temptation and danger, provoking them to wrath, or in any way dishonoring themselves or lessening their authority. Isn't that the story of our day? Every authority seeks to be sort of postmodern. You know, ain't no one but us chickens in here. You know, everybody's trying to hide their authority. I mean, think of President Clinton, right? Was he an authority? He was President of the United States. Was he an authority? Any lessening 
of their authority by an unjust, indiscreet, rigorous, or remiss behavior. His first book that he read, that he wrote, George MacDonald dedicated it this way. He said, Thou hast been faithful to my highest need. It was dedicated to his father. Thou hast been faithful to my highest need. And I, thy debtor, ever, evermore, shall never feel the grateful burden sore. Yet most I thank thee, not for any deed, but for the sense thy living self did breed that fatherhood is at the world's great core. Let us pray.